Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, grab one. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Guess my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. And uh, if you are a guest today, we're so glad that you are here. We normally walk through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say and uh, not what I have to say. And so we're going to continue in our series through the book, uh, the books of the Thessalonians, which we have titled Hoped Shaped Holiness. And if you are not a follower of Jesus today, what I want you to know, this, this is a safe place for you to ask questions. A safe place for you to see what the gospel is about, to see what the gospel has done in our lives, and to see what the product of that gospel is. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those black-covered Bibles in front of you and turn to page 1048 and follow along with us. If you do not have a Bible, please take it home with you. It's our gift to you. We want you to be able to read God's Word on your own, uh, and so please take that uh, if you wish. I don't know about you, but over the past uh, decade, two decades, we've had this weird obsession with the apocalypse or the end times or what is going to happen to us uh, in the coming years. Uh, there's been stockpiles of ammunition and people having bunkers made and all kinds of things. And people are worried about the end times. There's movies about it. Movies like 2012 or The Day After Tomorrow talk about what is going to happen to us at a specific, specific point in time. Even the Mayans, their calendar ran out, and that was in 2012. And so we were all going to just pass away at some point in 2012. And so there's this constant uh, obsession with what's going to happen to us in the end times. Well, if you're old enough to remember, some of you are not, uh, there was a book written by uh, Edgar Wisnett, he, and he titled it 88 Reasons the Rapture is Happening in 1988. If you never heard about this book, uh, it was published, uh, ready to go. He was firm that Jesus was coming back in 1988 and there was nothing you could do about it. Well, uh, 1989 came around and you would think, oh, he's wrong. Maybe, he, maybe he'll just, you know, maybe he'll realize he was wrong. Nope, he doubled down and wrote a book called, in 1889, 1989, he said, 89 reasons that Jesus is coming back in 1989. So he didn't, he didn't actually think, oh, maybe I'm wrong. He actually doubled down and wrote another book. And I'm not sure why they published that book, uh, to be honest with you, but they did. The question, though, is when is Jesus coming back is something that we all talk about. Or if people are not Christians, they ask the question, when's the world going to end? You can think of the man standing on the sidewalk in the city yelling, Jesus is going to return, repent. That kind of obsession Although this is true, how should we think about Christ's return? How should we think about that we are God's people waiting His glorious return? What are we supposed to do in light of Him returning? And so we come to chapter 5 and this letter. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to help our hearts. But he's not just going to help our hearts. We talked about last week. We have a hope in the gospel for our future. But today, that hope should fuel faithfulness. That hope should fuel faithfulness. So if we look here in chapter 5, this is what we're going to see. Paul reminds the Thessalonians to be prepared for Christ's return, even though they don't know exactly when it's going to be. And if you are a Christian today, if you've called the name of Jesus, what are you to know? What are you to do this morning? The reality of Christ's return fuels faithfulness in God's people. 
The reality of Christ's return fuels faithfulness in us. So if you are a disciple today, if, you've, if you're trying to walk with Jesus, if you're walking with Him, you are called now to be faithful to Him no matter what comes your way. No matter the circumstances, no matter the obstacles, you are called to be faithful to Him. And not only that, not only are you called to be faithful, the reality of your God coming back for you actually motivates us to be faithful. And this is what we're going to see here in this chapter 5. We are secure in our destiny. There is no reason to fear. We can hold the right attitude and disposition. We can live rightly in light of Christ's return. And so we get here to chapter 5. Let me give you a quick recap if you've not been with us. In chapter 1, Paul says, You Thessalonians, you've received the gospel message. This is what makes you a church of God because you've received the gospel. You hold on to the gospel. Now you share that gospel. You are a hope-shaped church. And in chapter 2, we saw that Paul talked about his ministry to the Thessalonians. He cared deeply for them. And what we saw was a hope-shaped ministry. And in chapter 3, what we saw was Paul talk about how he loved and cared for these people so much that he wished he could be there, but he couldn't. What we saw was a hope-shaped desire. We see that the gospel brings hope into our lives and it changes every aspect of who we are. And so everything is riding on the fact that the gospel brings hope to us and it changes us. That's the first three chapters of the book. And then in chapter 4, Paul begins to talk about how do we live in light of that? How do we live in light of sexuality? How do we live in light of loving our brothers and sisters? Last week, how do we live in light of Jesus coming back? And now this morning, Paul digs in a little further in that. He doesn't want to speculate. He's not worried about that. What he's worried about is how are God's people going to live in light of the true fact that Jesus is coming back? How do we live? So I want to show us, I want you to see how Christ's return fuels faithfulness in us. But let's look at what that reality actually does. We're going to look at verse 1. Here's what we're going to see. The reality of Christ's return. Look there at verse 1. About the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to know anything or have anything written to you. As Paul continues this topic of Christ's return, he now moves to when he's going to return. This is what he means by the times and the seasons. It's this normal phrase in the first century. When is Jesus going to return? But part of the problem for this young church is that they were suffering persecution and opposition. So they felt like, if anything, Christ would return now for us because we are suffering now. But there's also a possibility that these folks were actually struck by intense curiosity. That is, they just wanted to know so badly, when is Jesus coming back. And you've heard the phrase, curiosity killed the cat. You've heard the phrase, curiosity has killed the cat. But now, curiosity may not kill you, but it can destroy and erode your faithfulness. If you find yourself speculating about endless unknown details that the Bible doesn't give us, maybe we, maybe you need to come back to the main point of the Bible. What Jesus says in Luke 24 is this, that it's about him and his life, his death, his burial, and resurrection. When we focus on this, we see the greatest detail that God could ever give us. That he loves you. 
more than anything that you could possibly know. He loves you. And it's that detail that helps fuel us to be faithful. If Christ came once and he's coming back again, what that means is he's not going to leave us behind. He's not going to leave us on our own. He cares for us. Paul says, you don't need any more information. I don't need to write to you. You've been taught about Christ's return. You have all the information you need for living rightly and living the Christian life. Church, often we know the truth, don't we? Many of us in the room have read our Bibles. We know it. That's not the problem. The problem is we want more answers than we have. We want to know more than what God has given us. But if we look at the Bible, what we see is that we have what we need. Christ is returning. It's certain fact. And therefore, is it enough? Is it enough just to know that Jesus is coming back? Or are you going to try to fill in the blanks? Are we going to speculate about those blanks? Look at verse 2. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And Paul, what he does now is he introduces for the first time in the letter this phrase, the day of the Lord. And this phrase is used throughout the Old Testament and throughout Paul's letters. This day is associated with God's judgment, salvation for God's people, and is paired with Christ's second coming. And so Paul takes the Old Testament idea and he makes sure we understand the day of the Lord is when Christ is going to return. Now this phrase could mean that it happens all in one day, or it's possible that this, this happens over the course of many days. And so we have to take biblical passages in context to try to understand what does Paul mean by this. So we must be careful that we are not speculating about any of these things. There were theories in the first century, right? There were Jews who were thinking, when is God going to return for his people? Then you add the Gentiles into that when Jesus uh, is ascended into heaven, and now the gospel spreads not just to Jews, but to Greeks. And now you have all these ideas. When is God coming back for his people? But we must not speculate. Paul says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And it begins to contrast the impact of the Lord's coming. Here's what I want you to see. The reality of Christ's return is different for those who believe and those who do not. There are two different aspects, two different uh, impacts of the reality of Christ's return. So what I'm going to do is we're going to put both of those on the screen for you because I want you to see what Paul's doing. That the reality of Christ's return, it does not surprise us who believe, but brings security. But also, for those who don't, it is unexpected and causes upheaval. Look at verse 3. When when they say peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. First, I want you to take verse 2 and verse 3. What you see here is that Christ's return is like a thief in the night. What is clear is that the Thessalonian church knows Christ is coming, but he is coming like a thief in the night. You may think that's a strange way to talk about it, to think about it, to understand it. But in the first century, it was normal for thieves or burglars to break into people's homes. 
It was common. Our people were afraid. They were aware of this reality. They knew it was going to happen. They did not have the kind of security and locked doors that we have today. But we don't live in that kind of world. At least most of us don't. And so we lose the impact of Paul's words. Families in the first century absolutely understood that the thief was coming. It was just a matter of when they're coming. Now, again, on the other hand, we know. We know that Jesus is coming. But look how he uses these illustrations to now contrast it with what we know, with what the unbelievers are going to see and feel. He uses these three illustrations to describe the suddenness, just like the thief. Right? The thief explains it just like the suddenness, just like the unknown, it, boom, it happens. But look there, there's also this illustration of war. Right? The Romans used this phrase, peace and security. They would walk around, the soldiers, peace and security. It was a phrase of the Caesar, and he would, he would be able to protect them, and no one else could. Peace and security. I can provide political and social harmony for you. Even if you didn't submit to us when we came through and took your land. Peace and security. But this phrase rings hollow in the face of a true invasion. If a true invasion comes, destruction will happen. And so suddenly, so quickly, that they will not be able to escape it. Which brings Paul to his next illustration. It was so quick. It's so quick to Paul that he describes it like a mother going through labor. Now, labor was risky in the first century. They didn't have the medical technology that we have. It was was often that women would die in childbirth. But also notice, with labor, it comes on quickly. They didn't have the monitoring that we did. So they didn't even know sometimes that they were going to go into labor. Now, some of you know, uh, about three months ago, our second son, Connor, was born. Uh, But what some of you don't know is that uh, my wife woke me up about, well, I got up about 3.45, and I heard her say, hey, I think I'm having uh, contractions. Okay, great. Wonderful. Our son's going to be here. This was about two weeks early. Well, I was like, so how far apart are you? She says, well, about 15 minutes apart. Okay, I'm going back to sleep. I'll see you in a little bit, okay? Uh, and she's, you know, she kind of laid there and said, hey, you know, get, you know take, get some rest. You know, don't worry about tracking them. You know, we'll get up in a little bit. Well, she got up, and needless to say, things hit the fan, Literally. And, uh, you know, she's like, hey, something's wrong. I begin to freak out. She's freaking out. I have no idea what's... I thought something was wrong. Well, within 40 minutes from that point, my son is born in our kitchen. uh, Just her. My wife, I'm trying to get everything in the car. Hey, please get in the car. What are you doing? We got to go now to... Boom. There he was. And I'm on the phone with my mother-in-law. He is here. And she's like, call 911. Okay, and so I dialed 911, and I tell him, hey, my wife, she just gave birth to our son in our house. And I was like, on accident, please know, we did not plan this. (laughs) We did not plan this. That's how quickly, two hours, by the way, like 40 minutes, that labor can happen. It's the same thing in the first century. And the problem, and my wife knows, once it hits, mothers, you know, once it hits, you can't do anything about it. You can't go anywhere. I was like, I'm going to pick you up and put you in the car. She's like, no, don't touch me right now, okay? She, she was like, I'm not moving. We're not leaving. So there's no way, Paul says, there's no way a pregnant woman could escape these things. 
That's how sudden and quick this is going to happen. But if you are in Christ, you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about what is going to happen. God is the only security that we have. So what are the things you're putting your security in? Is it your 401k? Your pension? Is it financial security? Because if at this point, if the bank shut down, I'm not sure I would have any money. Is it relationships? Are there people that you've invested in and care about, but if they leave, you've lost all sense of security? Is it political movements that we find ourselves in even today around the world? Now, we'll be safe if this person is elected. No. God is the only sense of true security that we have. And we don't have to be apprehensive about that. We can anticipate it with joy and knowing that God is coming for us. Right? And he, as he comes back to us, look at verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. We are not in the dark, meaning that we are no longer in the domain of darkness. We are not blinded or separated by sin anymore. We do not live in moral darkness without Christ. And since we are not in the dark, we are not surprised by Christ's return. You might ask, so the day Lord is coming quickly and suddenly, but how are we not surprised? Well, we know He is coming, but we don't know when He is coming. Notice the difference. We know He is coming, but we don't know when He is coming. We must not speculate about that. Jesus even said Himself, I don't know when I'm coming back. Only the Father knows. So what do we know then? How do we live? Look at verse 5. For you are all children of the light and children of the day. We are not to belong to the night or the darkness. We are sons and daughters of the King of the light of the day. This means we have a relationship with the living God. The saving God who has broken into this world full of darkness. And He provides redemption for us through Christ. It is a relationship with that God. Which brings knowledge and certainty about our future. This phrase, children of the light and day, point to our holiness. Paul is not just saying, hey, you know it because you can see it. No, you walk in the light in such a way that you demonstrate your holiness. But this holiness is only received by that relationship with Christ. We no longer live in the dark. We no longer live unprepared. We no longer live in the ways that we used to. We are God's. We are God's children. And God's children do not worry about what is coming. They trust Him. They know that Christ is coming. And they are prepared, living that way. The children of God are faithful to Him. That's what He means. We live in the day. We are faithful to Him because we are preparing in the light. We are prepared for His return. Who we are must impact how we live. Paul has set it up. Don't miss his punch here. If the first three chapters are true, then what I'm saying to you as a child of the light, of the living God, 
then who you are must impact how you live. Oftentimes, the six inches between our brains and our hearts, those, those commands get mixed up, don't they? Because at the end of the day, if we're going to walk in the light, we have to love Jesus more than anything else. Whatever sin it is, whatever security blanket we have, whatever it is, if we love Jesus more than those things. The reality of Christ's return can cause either panic for those who do not know Him, or fuel faithfulness in God. Right, so what does this faithfulness actually look like? What does it actually look like? Well, Paul makes a transition here. He uses verses 4 and 5 to transition what we think. So I want to show you, secondly, the response of Christ's people. He transitions here in how we must live. And Paul is not worried when Christ is going to return, but how Christians live when he's returning. The exhortations here flow out of who we are and the reality of God's people and God's Christ coming for his people. Who we are must match what we do. And Paul sums this up in three actions. Three actions here. That's the response of Jesus' people. Number one, be alert. Look there at verse six. Be alert. So then let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. In light of Christ returning, we must be alert. Paul contrasts those who believe who are alert, right, and those who are asleep. We must not be asleep, which is the opposite of being ready. Unbelievers are not ready for Christ's return because they don't know. Instead, we are to stay awake and to be self-controlled. Staying awake means to be vigilant, to be alert. Remember, we don't know when He's coming. We must be ready and stand guard. Think about, you've seen the movies, the guard that's sitting outside the secure compound that nobody's supposed to get in, but he's sleeping. Right? All the movies show they sneak up and they just, you know, they scoot by underneath so he, he doesn't wake up and see them coming in. Right? Or he's eating. And somehow he gets distracted. He doesn't see the intruders coming into the secure compound. Don't be like that security guard. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. And then Paul, he strengthens this command to be alert with sober-mindedness. Be alert with sober-mindedness. That's what he means by self-controlled. We're not to be influenced or under the control of anything else. Right? Often we think about being under, under the influence of alcohol, which he's going to get to in a second. But this could be anything. Don't let anything control you. Always be sober-minded. Don't let anything take control of your affections. Don't let anything take control of your mind. Because if not, if you do, you may not be ready for Christ's return. And he goes further. Look at verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. For the first century, the nighttime was a horrific and sinister time to be out and about. You would not want to get caught by yourself in the night. But we don't think about the night this way. I mean, just think about New York City. It's the city that never sleeps. The lights are on all the time. Right? We have lights to turn on. We have lights overhead to show us where to go. But in the first century, they didn't have lights like that. And it would be more like if we were to go to 
New York City. I'm not sure which part. I have to ask Mr. Stephen which part I shouldn't go to. But let's say we go to a part we're not supposed to go to, and it's a deep, dark alleyway with no light. That's the kind of place that Paul is talking about. The night is not a place we want to be. The night is not a place that we want to enjoy. The night is not a place that we go and just are able to live. Paul says those who sleep, who aren't alert, do so at night. And they get drunk at night. Right Now, getting drunk at night was common practice in the first century, but getting drunk in the day was not actually sociable, acceptable. And so... He says, don't don't just not be in the day, but don't get drunk at night. He's saying, hey, don't be unprepared for when the thief is coming back. Again, it doesn't just mean being intoxicated. Paul is using it as a metaphor for those who are numb to God. They They do not know Him, and they cannot feel Him working around them. Those who are prepared, those who are alert, know that God's working and can feel it. They can see it. They know He is working. What are the things in our lives that are numbing us to our relationship with God? What are those distractions that are actually numbing us? Binge-watching shows, social media, our finances, our relationships. What are the things that are numbing God's presence in our lives? Church, if there are things that are distracting you, things that are numbing God's presence, you need to remove them from your life. Because all the enemy wants is for you to be unprepared, for you to be distracted, for you to be under the control of something else and not be prepared for Christ's return. Christ's return demands that we're alert. But also, we're to be armored. Look there at verse 8. We're to be armored. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. Once again, Paul founds his exhortation. He founds his command in who we are. Since or because we, Paul includes himself, since we belong to the day, God is in the, the day, in the light, put on his armor. Putting on the armor is a way to be prepared for battle. War and fighting were common in the first century. Now these people, they would be used to seeing soldiers in their their armor walk around where they were. And Paul grabs this imagery to help the church understand how prepared they're supposed to be. But also understand it's less about the physical armor and more about what it represents. And the armor is defensive. This armor is defensive. It prepares us for the battle, but a battle of waiting. A battle of preparation. Not a battle to go take our swords, but to be prepared and ready for when Christ comes and returns. At the core of Paul's imagery is putting on the armor. It's about putting on Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. These are supernatural. These are God-given. These are not ours. That's why we have to put them on. We are not naturally this way. We must take God's word with God's people, and we must put on these virtues together. And it's that armor, that spiritual armor, that allows us to bear fruit in our lives. It it allows us to remain prepared. 
It is our faith in God and our love to other Christians and to all people. Plus our hope and our coming Lord that enables us to completely be prepared for the day of the Lord. We can be prepared, but only with how God has designed it. Be armored. But thirdly, be assured. Be assured. Living the Christian life can be difficult. It's waiting for a Savior to return. It's not easy. We face potential temptation, suffering, persecution, opposition. We can be deserted on a regular basis. All of these things pushing against our ability to be faithful. Whatever has come your way, whatever has happened to you, our God is faithful. He's calling you to be faithful. He's calling you to be prepared. No matter what comes your way. So how could God, knowing what you're going through, knowing what is on your mind, knowing what you are struggling with, how could Paul ever say, be assured, know that our God is coming back? How can we have confidence? Because we have confidence in the promises of God. We have confidence in the promises of God. Look there at verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath but to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The basis for our faithfulness is not us, but it's the promise that God has done what He said He would do. It's about the promise that He fulfilled all the way back thousands of years ago that we have recorded in Genesis chapter 3. I am going to send someone, a seed of the woman, who will crush your enemy. And we know He's done it in Christ. He has fulfilled this promise. And for God, it founds our confidence in Him, not in us. Right? In His activity, in what He is doing. He has worked clearly in our lives and in the world. Right? And what He has done, what has He actually done? He has appointed us or chosen us not to receive wrath, but to obtain salvation. He's appointed us not to receive wrath, but to have salvation. And this salvation is not anything that we could have done. God's activity was to choose us. This is the only thing that we have done is to actually receive it. We received God's grace. We did not earn it. We did not earn God's salvation. It was given to us by God. So we must have a humility-driven faithfulness. Humility-driven faithfulness. Oftentimes we can look, or we can look at ourselves and think, I'm, I'm better than that person. I'm better than them. At least I don't struggle with those kinds of sins. At least, I, at least I have my stuff under control. That's not how Paul talks about it. Because for anyone who is in Christ, they understand the depths of their sin. They understand the depths of their heart. And so humility must drive our faithfulness. I don't know about you, but I, I can struggle with that. That I'm not as bad as them. So may we recite the gospel to ourselves daily. That God came in the flesh for you and me to die on the cross that I deserved to give his life for me. Recite that gospel to yourself. And then proclaim it to each other. 
That is, if this gospel is true, if Jesus came into the world and gave his life for us, then we can trust God fully and without compromise. But how did he do that? What did God actually do? Look at verse 10. Who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Paul may be used the most simplest terms he does in the whole New Testament. What's the gospel? Jesus Christ, who died for you. What this means is clearly God's redemptive work in Jesus. But it's also that Jesus is our substitute. Jesus died in your place. He paid for your sin. He was the one who reconciled you to God. Without him, we would have an infinite bill that we could not pay. But Paul, he reassures us, even if we're awake this time, if we're alive or we're asleep, that is dead, I think he's pulling back now to chapter 4, whether you are dead or alive, we will be with him. And don't lose sight of those last six words there in verse 10. We may live together with him. The gospel is not some tragedy that's been written. The gospel is not Romeo and Juliet. The gospel is that, yes, death thinks it had its final day when it killed our Savior. But what it didn't know is he was going to rise from the grave and now he reigns and the keys have been given to him and now we can submit our lives to him and have faith and hope and love because he has done what he said he was going to do. This is the gospel. We don't need to fear Christ coming back. Why? Because we know he's faithful to us. Because we will be with him forever, just like last week. We can be faithful in this life because he will be faithful to us in the next. Salvation from God's wrath is that we are spared from it. We don't have to receive it. But it's also that we are saved for a life with Christ. We are saved for faithfulness. Let me be very clear. If you do not know Christ today... This passage is not comforting in any way, shape, or form. This should be very scary. And I'm in no way trying to scare you into response. I want you to understand, though, the truth and reality that Christ is coming back. And this will take place. But we're not not scared into submission. Christ's work on the cross fuels us, ignites us, motivates us to love him. Not not being scared. In no way, shape, or form are we scared. Not before Christ came, and definitely not now. Because he's promised, and he's fulfilled that promise to us. But where's Paul end? Where's Paul end? The same thing as last week, but with a little different focus. Look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you were already doing. In light of Christ's return, in light of what he's done on the cross, Paul now calls us to faithfulness in him. He calls us to action. We are to encourage one another. This is corporate. You can be alert. You can be armored. You can be assured by yourself. But you can't do verse 11 by yourself. We are God's people together. We are to encourage each other. That is to comfort, to edify one another. And we're to build each other up. It means to invest. 
to give resources to. To make sure that we see each other walking with Christ. This letter and the doctrine of Christ's return should not bring us dread or fear. Rather, it should be encouraging to us. It should show us that in the midst of a broken world, we can have an impact here. So what does that look like? It looks like us discipling one another. I use that phrase broadly, very broadly, on purpose. Discipling one another. We all have a job in the family. If, if we are a church family, if God has actually came into the world and bought us, then we must be God's people in a way that's actually helping each other. We must disciple one another through phone calls and prayer. Just in interactions, going to lunch, coming over, calling someone at 9 o'clock at night. Hey, I need your help. I need your thoughts on this. That's just us discipling one another. It happens in our missional communities. It happens in D groups. It happens when we serve together. We just are able to have those conversations of encouragement to one another. You have a responsibility. You have a place in God's family, and particularly here. As our church family, as Covenant Hope, we have a job to do together. Our job, our church family is only as strong as each individual holding up their task, which is to encourage and to comfort one another. So the question for us is, how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond? Maybe you you wanted me to come in here and tell you exactly when Jesus is coming back. I can't do that. I wish I could. I can't. So are we going to speculate about what God is going to do and when Jesus is going to come back? Or rather, are we going to have a service mindset? Our speculation leads to the gospel being ridiculed. Books like 88 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1988, that leads to Christianity being ridiculed. Instead, if we don't speculate, instead we serve one another, we build each other up, we edify one another, that demonstrates the gospel and its impact in our lives. To sum it up, I think this quote does it well. The Christian focus is always on readiness, but a readiness not based on an accurate reading of the times, but on living in faith, hope, and love. Pray with me. God, we ask today, in the midst of all the craziness in our world and amidst the brokenness that we all felt in different ways this week, may the reality of your son's return fuel us to be faithful no matter what. Will we be your people who trust you? Will you be our first and final security blanket? Will you be what helps us Stay alert, be armored with your virtues, and be assured from your promises and what you've done. God, we so desperately need you today. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.